Good morning, everyone. I'm a little croaky this morning. I promise it's just a cold. I want to start by reading a couple verses from our psalm that we just read, Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are sure. Verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to pass. He commanded, and it stood fast. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I've mentioned before in a previous sermon uh, the poem, uh, Die Bibelforscher, the Protestant martyrs of the Third Reich. I don't know if some of you remember that. This poem by the Welsh poet Waldo Williams. It's a poem I keep coming back to over and over. I don't know specifically who these martyrs were or what their story was. I'd be curious to learn more. Except that they were Protestants and they were martyrs, and they were apparently in Buchenwald, one of the Nazi concentration camps. And the poem tells us that they could have signed some statement giving their allegiance to the Nazis, maybe serving the Nazi cause in some way, but they wouldn't do it, and so they were killed. The poem tells us that the king had put his message in their hands for them to carry. The king is Christ, and the message is the word of God, the articles of our faith. So these martyrs, the poem said, were bearers of the royal writ, clinging to it through spite and hurts and wounding. That's the central image of this poem, these martyrs' hands clenched around the royal message of the king amid their horrible circumstances, even unto death. It says this, they closed their eyes to doors that might have opened if they had put their names to words of cowardice. That's the opportunity they were offered to collaborate with the Nazis in some way and be released. They took their stand, backs to the wall, face to face with savagery, and died there with their filth and, I'll skip a word, flowing together, arriving at the gates of heaven, their fists still clenched on what the king had written. The poem wants to emphasize how lowly and ugly and ignominious a death these martyrs are dying. They are literally dying in their own filth. Their choice to die this way seems, from one perspective, completely absurd. They are dying with nothing in this world's terms. They are the losers, the weak, the despised. All they have in this world is that message from the king, still clutched in their fists. I think I keep coming back to this poem because I often find in myself the temptation to expect that my faith should give me a good life in this world. 
It's easy to think that if we live our lives as good Christians, if we make the right choices, if we follow God's law, mostly, anyway, then our lives should turn out pretty good. Not perfect. Bad things still sometimes happen. But good. A good job. A stable life in the suburbs. Maybe a nice family. Friends around us. It's easy to assume that we're owed this. If we do our part, if we're good Christians, then this stuff should more or less follow. But it's nonsense. It's a lie. All we have to do is look around us to see what a lie it is. Christians, just like anyone else, suffer immeasurably. We often carry intolerable burdens. St. Augustine said that this life is preparation for the next. Full of pain, it is to be endured rather than enjoyed. Thinking otherwise leaves us unprepared to be obedient to Christ in the midst of suffering. Does that sound harsh to you? (laughs) Of course, there are many things, good things to be enjoyed in this life. That is God's grace to us. And God has already given us so much. His spirit, his church, the means of grace, the fellowship of believers. But even these things are only a foretaste of what is to come. Our lives are still characterized by suffering and pain. We each carry wounds that will not and cannot be fully healed in this life. To expect otherwise will only end in disappointment and disillusionment. This life is preparation for the next. Full of pain, it is to be endured rather than enjoyed. Those Protestant martyrs in Buchenwald died with nothing. They had not yet received what had been promised. They had nothing at all except God's promise itself. Their fists still clenched on what the king had written. Today is the first Sunday after Trinity, as Mother Nancy has already reminded us. It is the beginning of what's called ordinary time, which, depending how you divide it up, begins either on Trinity Sunday itself, which was last Sunday, or since Trinity Sunday is itself special, ordinary time begins today, the first Sunday after Trinity. And today we've changed our color to green. And as Charles always reminded us, green till Halloween. We've finished rehearsing the great story of our faith through all the great seasons of the church. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. We live now in the reality of Pentecost. And as Felipe preached last week, we live now in the reality of the Trinity itself. Now is the time for us to grow up into the reality of our faith, living out our ordinary lives in the places where we have each been planted. And the lectionary readings for this first Sunday of Ordinary Time are no accident. We have today God's promise to Abraham and Abraham's faith. 
First, the Genesis telling of that story, and then that story interpreted by Paul in Romans, and also interpreted by the Gospel of Matthew, although I'm not going to get much into that. You can do that on your own. Here, as we begin this daily, ordinary life of faith, the lectionary begins by teaching us what faith is. This story of the calling of Abraham is, in the setting of the whole story of the Bible, one of the most important stories in the scriptures, because it is the beginning of the story of the nation of Israel, and so also the beginning of the story of the rest of the Bible. It is also, as we'll see, the beginning of the story of the church, because it is, for the New Testament writers, the great story of faith. Abraham's faith is the model for our faith. And if we have faith like Abraham, we are God's children, part of God's chosen people. So let's begin with the story in Genesis. There's a lot we could get into in this story. Uh, I've had to divide and conquer. I just want to notice a couple of things. I want us to notice how God tests Abraham, or Abram, as he is here, in two specific ways that God tests him. First, he tests Abram by asking Abram to follow him blindly, by faith, not by sight. He does not tell Abram where he's going. Genesis 12, verse 1. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He could have told Abram where he was going. What a beautiful and rich land it was. It might have seemed easier for Abram to obey if he knew some of the details. Instead, God's command feels very hard, even absurd. God wants Abram to pick up his entire life, his whole family, leave everything he knows and everything that's familiar. There's no FaceTime, there's no Zoom. And go where? He doesn't know. But this is God's test for Abram. Abram must follow God blindly. God wants Abram's obedience to be because Abram believes in God's promise and for no other reason. If God had tempted Abram with visions of a rich and beautiful land, of wealth and power for Abram himself, then Abram's motives would have been mixed. Instead, God demands a blind obedience. And this is, strangely, for Abram's own good. It means that if he chooses to obey God, his life must thereafter be based on God's promise, not on his own wisdom, his own prudence, or his own cleverness. God does the same with us today. Our faith, too, must be the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, God remains hidden today to our mere human reason. We cannot follow him by our own understanding. We will not find him that way. Only by faith can we see God and follow him. And as hard as that can be sometimes, it is for our own good. It forms us as people of faith. So God tests Abram by asking Abram to follow him blindly, by faith not by sight. Second, and closely related, God tests Abraham by asking him to 
believe something impossible. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. At the end of the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 11, we learn that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren. Just a few verses ago, uh, Genesis 11 verse 30, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And Abram is already starting to get old. He's 75 when we meet him. How can Abram ever become the father of many nations? Only by a miracle. Abram's faith in God must go beyond his own reason, beyond what is humanly possible. We too are called to place our faith in God to the point of believing things that are humanly speaking impossible. We must confess that a virgin once bore a son. We must believe, too, that when that son died, God raised him from the dead. In this, too, Abraham is our example. Later, in one of the strangest and hardest stories in all the Bible, God will tell him to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, the son of God's promise. And incredibly, Abraham will obey. He will obey, Hebrews 11 tells us, because he considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. As it does with us today, God's promise to Abraham demanded that Abraham believed something humanly impossible. Now, it's easy to be hard on Abraham. He made lots of mistakes. Uh, we shouldn't make excuses for them. There's the episode in Egypt where he will lie and say that his wife, Sarai, is his sister and not his wife out of fear of the Pharaoh. And then there's the whole Hagar story, probably the low point in Abraham's career. And yet, Abram is still held up as our example of faith because, incredibly, he does obey God. He believes God's promises even when it seems absurd. And Abraham's faith is not just an intellectual one. It's not just a sort of mental assent to the idea that God's promises are true. No, his belief in God's promises means he has to do something. In each case, he actually has to leave behind his life and go somewhere that he does not even know yet. In the second case, it's easy to forget that God's promise that Sarai herself would bear a child also required an obedient action on the part of Abraham and Sarai themselves, something that must have felt pretty foolish and pointless at the time. And finally, Abraham was also willing in a way that boggles our minds, to sacrifice his own son in the hope of the resurrection. Despite his many failures, Abraham does act in faith. And so he is held up by the New Testament writers as our example. As Romans will say, God credits it to him as righteousness. There's something else here too, something that, Hebrews 11 also picks up on. Abraham never sees the final fulfillment of these promises to him. He sees his son Isaac, of course, 
the miracle baby. But he never inherits the land that he was promised. When he dies, it is still full of Canaanites, full of his enemies. He never sees the great nation God told him that his offspring would one day become. He dies, as Hebrews says, in faith, not having received what was promised, having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. Abraham must believe God's promise blindly, by faith, not by sight. And he must believe it even though it is, humanly speaking, impossible. And he must keep this faith right to the end of his life, never fully receiving in this life what had been promised. Our epistle today from Romans teaches us that Abraham's story is also for us today. Paul says that God's promise to Abraham was not fulfilled in the law, but by faith. Romans 4, verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And why is this so important to Paul? Because it means that God's promises to Abraham are not for the Israelites only, but for all who believe God's promises by faith. Because Abraham received these promises by faith, we too can receive them in the same way. Look in verses 23 and 24. The words it was credited to him as righteousness were written not for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. If we believe God's promises by faith, as Abraham did, then we are Abraham's children, and so we are the people of God. This is the wonderful news of the Christian gospel. We don't have to be part of Abraham's ethnic family to be saved, nor are we saved by the law, like Abraham, we are saved when we take God at his word, when we hear God's word of salvation to us in Jesus Christ and believe it. We are saved. And it is because Abraham's faith must be completely in God and not in himself that his faith can save him. It is because he must obey God's command by faith and not by sight and because it demands that he believe in something impossible, it must be truly faith. Abraham did not obey God because what God said made sense to him, or because he understood it, or because that's what he would have done anyway. No, if Abraham was going to obey God at all, it had to be by faith. And it was that faith that was counted to him as righteousness. Like Abraham, we also have not yet received all that was promised. God has not yet established his kingdom on the earth. Instead, the rulers and principalities of this age still wield their power. God has not yet wiped away every tear. There is still death and mourning and pain. 
The old order of things has not yet passed away. But also, like Abraham, it is because we haven't yet received what was promised that we are invited to bet everything on the word of God. It is, in fact, God's kindness to us that we are invited to live lives of faith in him. If our faith was seeing, it could not be faith. The poem we started with about the Protestant martyrs at Buchenwald is called uh, Die Bibelforscher, which I'm reliably informed by Google Translate, uh, means the Bible people or the Bible students. These martyrs had nothing in this world to cling to except the word of God. They were truly Bible people. Their fists were clenched on what the king had written. In a few minutes, we will receive Holy Eucharist. And we'll hear the words, this is my body, which is given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. These are God's words to us. When we hear them in faith and receive the sacrament with open hands, it is counted to us as righteousness. These are the words the king has written. There is nothing for us except these words of promise. Come and cling to them with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.